following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning. This morning I'm going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you are called and that you might inherit a blessing. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ might be put to shame. I'm Caitlin, and our sermon reading this morning is John 18:33 through 38. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this, I was born. And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? After after he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. Thank you, Caitlin. So I'm going to ask you uh, to do a little imaginative exercise with me uh, this morning as we get started here. I want you to imagine the feeling of sitting down to take a big test in school. Now, I'm going to be nice about it. I'm going to allow you to choose a class that you're pretty good at or we're pretty good at in school. But you're sitting down for a big test in this class, and before the teacher passes out the exam, She says, now remember, uh, this test counts for 40% of your final grade. Thank you. Uh, I hope that you studied hard. You have two hours. All right, are you with me so far? Where in your body are you feeling this story? (laughs) Right? Oh, it gets better. So you sit down to take the test, and you look at the first question, and you go, huh? You have no idea. You're like, okay, I'll go to the next one. You're not supposed to linger on the questions you don't know. You're supposed to do the ones that you do know. So I'll come back to it later when I have time. And then you look at the next question, and it's even worse. You, you have no memory of this topic even coming up in class ever. Not a good feeling. So you go to the third question, and it looks a little more familiar, and you're feeling good about that. 
So you set to work on it. Um, but after spending some time working on it, you have not really made very much progress. You're thinking, okay, maybe I'll get half credit for this one. And then the teacher says, you have five minutes left. And then you wake up in a cold sweat because, of course, this is a nightmare. <laughs> My apologies for giving you the nightmare feeling, by the way. I should have warned you. Um, so let me warn you. I'm going to give you the nightmare feeling about school one more time. <clears throat> Do you remember the feeling in school? <clears throat> and I had this sometimes. When the teacher's introducing a new topic and you just don't get it at all. <laughs> Like, not just you have a question that you're going to keep in the back of your mind until the end of the lecture, but you are totally lost. You've got nothing, no idea what's happening at all. This happened to me quite recently, actually. Um, some of you know I'm in a master's program for uh, mental health counseling, and I had to take a class last year called Assessment in Counseling, which is about the various ways of mentaling mental health, measuring mental health outcomes. Um, either to help clients uh, understand themselves better or maybe to determine the quality of a research experiment or something like that. It's basically statistics. Uh, now, <clears throat> if you've been spending any time listening to me over the years, you know I've made a lot of hay over the idea that, um, you know, I'm not really like a math person. I always joke I'm more of a humanities person, right? Um, you know, I can't even add numbers together and all that kind of stuff. Now, I just need to be honest with you. That's kind of a bit. I'm not actually terrible at math. It's just that I prefer the the higher disciplines of things like literature and art and <clears throat> theology and so forth. But that joking stuff aside, when the professor put the equation for standard deviation up on the board, by the way, I'm going to put that up on the board for you. <clears throat> How many of you look at that and go, huh? Right? I was totally lost. Not a little lost. I was totally lost. And it didn't help, by the way, that they didn't even explain what standard deviation is, like in a humanities kind of explanation. <laughs> by the way, the standard deviation is nothing more or less than the average distance from the mean. That will help you a lot if you're a person like me who needs that first little bit of information before you can be bothered to learn that equation. All right? Um, so I have a non-rhetorical question for you. You can shout out a one-word answer for me if you would be so willing. How do you feel when you don't understand something or don't know something that you think you're supposed to know? How does it feel? Stupid. Yeah, I feel stupid. Thank you. Embarrassed? Lost? Scared? Sorry? Sick? Mm. Feel failure. Wrong. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. Thank you. So descriptive. I love it. Did someone say guilt? <laughs> wow. So there's, there's a lot of different stuff that happens for us when we think about not knowing something or not understanding something that we should know. Okay. No more school nightmares, I promise. Uh, possibly religion nightmares, but no more school nightmares in today's sermon. We are observing Lent a little differently this year. Rather than looking at the lectionary texts every week, which we have done almost every Lent since Artisan started, um, we are reading a book together. And, uh, and so instead of focusing on giving something up for the season of Lent, which is an admirable thing to do, and if you've decided to give something up for Lent, that's great. We encourage you to keep doing that. But instead of 
uh, as a community encouraging that for everyone, what we've done instead of removing something during Lent is added something in during Lent. And the thing that we've added in is this lovely book by Rachel Held Evans, Wholehearted Faith. Uh, you heard Pastor Jesse talking about it at the announcements. I'll encourage you to grab a coffee. A copy. You can have a coffee too, but I encourage you to grab a, grab a, grab a copy of the book on the way out if you don't already have one. Um, it's pretty light reading. Um, the chapters are short. We're only doing one chapter each time we come together. It's not even all the chapters in the book. Okay, so the bar is pretty low as far as reading assignments go, but it's very, very much a lovely, encouraging, beautiful book. Um, and we're doing one chapter a week. Today's chapter four. Next week is chapter six if you wanted to be reading ahead. Um, here's the thing. If you don't have the book and aren't able to get it or decide not to get it, don't just be like, I'm not coming back until after Lent is over. Please stick with us. And I, I, I promise that we'll do our best to make things work for you, even if you haven't read the book. So chapter four of Wholehearted Faith is entitled The Liberation of the Know-It-All. And I think that Rachel points us to such an important set of ideas in this chapter. Uh, because here's something that I have absolutely observed in my more than two decades of pastoral ministry. And if I'm being honest, something that I've observed in my more than four decades of like being this person, what I've observed in that time is that we are often just as anxious and uncomfortable, maybe even more, when we don't fully grasp matters of faith and spirituality as when we don't grasp academic things like standard deviation or Boyle's law or what on earth the meaning of Moby Dick is. By the way, which thing is more true? Boyle's law, which has something to do with pressure and temperature, that can be calculated with math, or Moby Dick. Which is more true? What is truth, Pilate said. Mm-hmm. So what Rachel means by the liberation of the know-it-all is really powerful. Now, when I first read the chapter title, uh, I kind of was breezing through it, and I thought, oh, the know-it-all. I can't wait. She's going to stick it to all the know-it-alls. Probably about the Pharisees or something. I love it. If I'd read more carefully or more slowly, I would have realized that the liberation of the know-it-all, that word liberation should have been a clue that the know-it-all was she. It was me. It was us. It's the reader. And the idea that it would be liberating, that it would be freeing, for us to release our need to have the answer to a difficult question is what makes this chapter so very meaningful. Because for most of us, certainly for me, the first feeling that comes when we realize that we don't know something is not a feeling of freedom at all. It's the feelings that you all shouted out. It may be a feeling of panic. So my question is this, why do we feel all of those feelings when we are confronted with something we don't know? <laughs> it's not a great question. Uh, in, in counseling, we would call that not an effective question. Something I've learned in, in my counselor training is that you, sh- you probably shouldn't ask somebody why they feel a certain way because nobody ever knows why they feel it anyway, right? 
We're lucky if we can acknowledge the fact that we feel a specific thing at all and identify it on a list of possible feelings we might be having. And in some ways, the work of therapy, if you've been in therapy, you know, um, sometimes the work is just simply to understand what you are feeling and where it came from. And getting to the why is like a long process. It might be useful in sort of unwinding everything, but you probably don't know the answer right off the bat of why you feel the things you feel when you realize that you don't know something. But still, that's my question. Why? Why do we feel that way? Uh, there's a couple possibilities, and I think Rachel points us to some, and I'm going to expand on them a little bit. I love the first thing that, sh that she said about this, which is that for her, as a woman, saying the words, I don't know, is, quote, an irresistible light to the mansplainy moths. <laughs> right? <clears throat> So if you are a, a woman, you've probably got a much more, um, you've, you're probably much more intimately acquainted with that reality than I am. If anything, I have been the mansplainy moth um, to the flame of someone's unknowing. And I, I'm not sure I can give women a great solution for that. That is the world that we live in. But I can say this to the men. Um, in my most spiritual language that I can muster, cut that crap out. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Allow people, including women, to say, I don't know, without explaining the thing that you do know or you think you know. All right. Now, she specifically starts diving into some of the scriptures, which will be familiar to some of you when it comes to the question of not knowing the answer to a religious question. Um, you, you've heard this phrase, some of you, always have a ready defense, right? Um, I'm, I'm always so torn because I know we have a bunch of people in the congregation who are not really churchy in their past at all. And then we have a bunch of people in our congregation who are really churchy in their past. And if you're in that first group, you're like, I don't know, I never heard that before in my life. <laughs> um, say an extra prayer of thanksgiving to God when you go to sleep tonight. But for those of us who grew up in that churchy environment, always have a ready defense was like, that's what we call apologetics, right? You're supposed to know the answers to all the difficult questions. What about evolution? You're supposed to have the answer for why it's a lie. You know, uh, what about, et cetera, fill in the blank. What about these hard questions? You're supposed to have an answer for all of them. Always have a ready defense because it was suggested that knowing the answer to the hard questions is what's going to get somebody else converted. And there's nothing more important than that. Did you notice, by the way, that that line was in one of the scripture readings we've heard in our service already? Always have a ready defense. What Rachel is so kind to observe and remind us about is that that text happens to be from 1 Peter is not at all about coaching a candidate for a political debate. It's not that kind of have a ready defense. Rather, it's about counseling potential martyrs who are at risk of losing their lives for their religious beliefs 
about what they should do if it comes to that moment. Most of us are never, ever going to come anywhere near a moment like that. It doesn't mean that this text has no purpose for us, but it is useful to keep in view that that was the context to which Peter was writing. And what it goes on to say is have a ready defense, not about like doctrine, not about the specific things that you're supposed to convince unbelievers of, but rather so that you'll have an account of the hope that is within you. Once again, this lesson will come up every week if you, don't, if you allow me to, to say it. Sometimes you probably should cut me off on saying this. But you can't just look at the few words. You have to see where it sits in the text. And always have a ready defense so that you can give an account for the hope you have if you're at the place of being martyred. It feels very different than know the answer to every question or else you're not a good Christian. And yet, it's that second message that so many of us have received. Another one that comes up all the time in some churchy settings is from our gospel reading today. Uh, it's sort of appropriate for the season of Lent. It'd probably be more appropriate for, for Passion Sunday or Passion Week when Jesus has been arrested and he's sort of in the process of being put on trial both by the, the church, which is to say the synagogue, and the state, which is to say the Roman Empire. And the representative of that latter group is Pontius Pilate, who appeared in our creed, if you remember that. And he starts interrogating Jesus, and, and it comes to the point of him ultimately saying to Jesus, well, what is truth? Right? And it, I, I think the way that churchy people approach that moment in Scripture is not by this really quite insightful and poignant question, which is more true, Boyle's Law or Moby Dick, but rather something a little bit more coarse and base, which is to say, that's a representative of a secular governmental official who rejects the idea of absolute truth. When Pilate says, what is truth? He's saying, everything is truth. Everything is equally true. First of all, I don't think that's what Pilate is saying. I think that's a caricature of what he's said. Hopefully, I'm not making a caricature of the people who make this sort of argument. But if I'm being honest with myself, I probably am. But with all of those things, and there's many more that some of us who've been raised in situations like this can name, where um, not knowing something is not just a matter of not knowing it, but of being unprepared and unfulfilled in our Christian faith, right? For those of us that, who have that in the back of our mind, I think it's so lovely that Rachel gives us an alternative way of thinking about this. And she points out, this is the, if I were just going to say one sentence that's like the best sentence from the whole chapter and sermon about the chapter, is that faith in Jesus has been recast as a position in a debate, not a way of life. And I think for the alternative way of thinking about knowledge and truth and understanding, we need to invert that phrasing so that we can reimagine faith in Jesus as a way of life, not as a position in a debate. And I wonder what that might look like for some of you. I can think about what it would look like for me, but I bet it's a different answer that you would have. To the extent that you have made faith in Jesus a position in a debate, what would it look like for you to make it, rather than that, a whole way of life? Rachel says that it would give us a renewed sense of possibility to realize how much of God's beauty remains to be explored. So you can think about unknown things in two ways. You can think of it as a deficit, or you can think of it as an opportunity. And she points us to the latter. She points us to a way of life 
that is open to growth and increase of knowledge and understanding, but that does not expect like a minimum viable product of knowledge in order to actually be part of God's family. This, by the way, is a perfect setup for our foundational value of awe. If you, if you've spent any time with artisan, you know that our foundational values are awe, beauty, roots, community, and justice. And our statement of awe says, we humbly recognize the sovereign power, reverent mystery, and gracious wonder of God, who is worthy of our worship and full devotion. Right there in our foundational documentation as a church, we have an acknowledgement and an embrace of mystery. Which in many ways, I think, well, like in, in certain ways would be like one of the defining characteristics of what it's like to, to be a, a believer or to be a seeker on the path here at Artisan. The embrace of mystery. As I run out of time yet again, I need to do better with my time management. I know that there are some people, um, and I, I promise I'm not being cruel about this or um, derisive. There are some people who, who really aren't happy unless there's like a chapter and verse argument in favor of something, not just a, a kind of reframing of something else from the Bible. And so I'm going to offer to you some ideas from the book of Acts. I'm going to fly through it. And I would, I, I have a limitless amount of capacity to talk about this particular type of thing. So please talk to me if you want more uh, or run in terror if you definitely don't. But if you were to look at the second chapter of the book of Acts, the story of God sort of forming the Christian church uh, and the, the Holy Spirit's arrival on the, on the gathering of early Christians, you would, you, you, some of you know this story where they're all gathered together and they have like flames appear over their heads and they start talking in different languages and all of this stuff. Here are two phrases that are direct quotes from the, the book of Acts. The crowd gathered and was bewildered, and all were amazed and perplexed. By any standard, regardless of denomination or anything else, I think almost every Christian would say that the events of Acts chapter 2 are some of the greatest and most important works of God in the whole Bible. And right at the center of that most important of works is not assurance, certainty, and knowledge, but bewilderment, amazement, and perplexity. And by the way, if you were to go on in the book of Acts and read, I would recommend reading Acts 8 through at least 15, maybe even 17, over and over and over again. Some of the most powerful moments in the entire Christian story. Um, by the way, one of the most significant um, biblical arcs to understand for people who have a hard time with LGBTQ inclusion within a church that holds scripture as uh, authoritative in some sense, as we do, right? But much more than that for today, it's a fantastic argument for simply allowing your mind to be changed because the apostles had their minds changed over and over and over again in Acts 8 through 15. About stuff that was chapter and verse in their own scriptures, the Holy Spirit and its work, his work, her work, their work, superseded all of that, all of their history and tradition and scripture. And I want to ask you, when was the last time you changed your damn mind about something that was important? <laughs> Dan, if you'll allow me, 
you have the wisdom that some of us lack. Uh, Dan says yesterday, he's got me beat by a mile. I don't know about you. I don't know what it would be for you. Can you take, I'm just going to give you five seconds of silence. When was the last time you actually changed your mind? Not about where to go for dinner. Something important. Contrary to what you might have been told in very strong terms, it's absolutely okay to change your mind about big religious ideas. And I would go one step further to say that it's more than okay that if you're going to ride with Jesus, it's practically guaranteed that you're going to end up changing your mind about something important, something religious. Repentance literally means changing your mind. Metanoia, it's a transformation. It's a change of mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds, the Apostle Paul says. This is part of the Christian life. And here's the thing. Nobody ever changes their mind like, boop, from having one idea to having a completely different idea in one second. There's always a middle space, a transitional experience in which you say the words, I don't know. And so I'm going to tell you that contrary to being an indication that your faith is not strong enough or on the verge of death, The words, I don't know, are actually an indication that you are still on the road with Jesus and that you are still open to the work of God in your life, in the lives of others, in the life of our world. And so, in closing, I'm going to ask you to be very honest with yourself. You don't have to say anything out loud, but I do want you to whisper it in your brain about what you don't know. I don't know blank. What goes in the blank for you today? And either write it down or picture it in your head because you're going to solidify this. I don't know, whatever it is for you, something religious that you haven't dared to say out loud or even admit to yourself. As I close here, I'm going to leave you with this last thing which Rachel gives us from the book, from Miguel de Unamuno. He says this, I'll put it on the screen for you. Those who believe that they believe in God, but without any passion in their heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, without an element of despair, even in their consolation, believe only in the God idea, not in God himself. Powerful. As we sing another song together, I'm going to invite you to come and take Holy Communion, reminding you that this sacrament has been practiced by Christians of all kinds of stripes, of all kinds of varying beliefs, and it's the thing that unifies us. And that the word sacrament literally means holy mystery. Is this the real presence of Jesus' body and blood? I don't know. Yes? Ish, right? How sacrilegious is that? I would say it's sacramental. It's a holy mystery, which is why our table's open to everybody who feels ready to come and take part of it. I'm not going to tell you not to come. This is Jesus' table, not mine. (laughs) And I need to get out of the way. I will do that now. Let's continue to worship God in song and in sacrament. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.